About 10 years ago, I was at a large church as the associate, and I was over the hip, as I was telling some of the staff members this week, I was over the hip, skinny jean contemporary service. And there's a whole story on how I even got skinny jeans, because I wasn't going to buy into the fad, and then I just acquired a pair suddenly, and, and became every part of the, the stereotype of a worship leader at that time. But one of the things happened, we have this, this almost tradition in my family where my sister and her husband and her kids come up and they'll spend the week with us between Christmas and New Year's every year. And like most things in the world, it kind of shuts down in that week. There's not a whole lot going on. And so we'll spend a lot of time together, our, our kids, all the cousins will play together and do things. And that's when we exchange our gifts and have another, essentially another little mini Christmas. And one year when I was this contemporary worship leader, my sister thought it'd be great to get us all matching sweatshirts. So we all, she bought me and my wife and our two girls matching hoodies, dark navy blue. And we thought, you know, the first Sunday of the new year, you know, our contemporary service met in a gym and it was drafty and cold. And we thought, oh, it'd be nice if we all four of us walk in wearing these matching hoodies that my sister got. She'll like it. You know, we'll look like we're a coordinated, put-together family. I'm glad some of you giggled as if that's a fantasy. And, and we did. So we did. We put them on. And I walked in, and the band leader and two other staff members on stage, their faces sank. You'd thought I'd just punch them in the gut. Because... There were these navy hoodies, and across the front was a big Houston Texans logo. <laughs> there's one. There's one in every crowd. In, in case you forgot, Houston's that way. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm guessing that was the intended response my, my older sister had, um, older being the key word in that phrase, because... Everyone else in the room also, all the other people as they saw it, had the same reaction because this church was about 30 minutes from the Cowboy Stadium. <laughs> I can't help but think it was a plant, and I fell for it like hook, line, and sinker. And I had, I had a staff member come up to me before worship started and said, hey, pastor, hey, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure, sure, sure. And she pulled me aside and she said, I think... I think you should take the sweater off before you preach. I was like, are you, are you sure? She's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Re read the room, I'm pretty sure. This, this is a cowboy's church. And so I took the sweater off and preached. But it, it's funny because the congregation, as a pastor, you learn this, as a congregation, people tend to have a, a large amount of mercy for the mistakes their leadership makes. Even if it's wearing a Texan's hoodie in an all-Cowboys crowd, unbeknownst to how, how harmful that would be to the congregation, they extend this mercy. And we, we all need that mercy at times. We all make mistakes. We all, as Paul says, fall short of the glory that is God. But we often think of mercy in terms of just extending that grace to people who have done something wrong or who had made a mistake, who are at some sort of social faux pas. It reminds me of growing up, we would drive to our old family farm in South Dakota from Texas. It's not the most fun drive for an elementary age student. 
and we'd drive in the back of a Pon an old 80s Pontiac Firebird. And I want you to remember these cars. They got a whole 12 miles to the gallon if you drove them right. And, and the doors were so heavy when I was in fifth, fourth grade, I couldn't quite close them myself. And we would get, we'd fold ourselves up as children, get in the back seat and drive up there. And there was a hump in the middle of the back seat. And that was the dividing line for siblings. If you've ever had a sibling or if you've ever had a... Uh, children yourself that are siblings, you kind of know where this is going. This is an invisible dividing line. And you don't ever cross the line because that's, that's foreign occupied territory. Unless you're being really aggressive that day and you just want to annoy them, then you reach over the line ever so slowly and calmly. I, so I see a bunch of people pointing at each other. Like, really? We're, we're four weeks in and you guys are already touching each other your hands to yourself during the sermon. So, but you, you reach over the line, and, you, and I, I've seen, I swear I've seen my children do this in the rearview mirror so many times. They, they will literally, as I'm looking back through the mirror, reach over just to annoy the other one. That is seen through the lens of a grandparent, where no one can do wrong. And they do that. They, they reach over the line, and this is what we think about mercy, and this is how we usually approach it when we talk in the church. We approach it as simply as we see those children. They reach across that line, they annoy the mess out of each other, and then mom or dad or whatever authority figure happens to be sitting in front of them turns around and makes them apologize. I remember being an elementary student, being so angry at my sister because she talked me into jumping out of my bedroom window with a Barbie umbrella. And it was going to stop my fall. And the only thing that stopped my fall is when my face hit the dirt. <laughs> and I walked around the front of the house with a bloody lip and knocked on the front door to a shocked parent. And my mom sat us down and she made us apologize. She made my sister apologize. She said, apologize to him. And she, she kicked the ground and looked down at her feet and mumbled, I'm sorry, I apologize for pushing you out the window with an umbrella. And, and, and then me, not really accepting the apology, because I'm just thinking of the annoying girl who would reach across into my side of the back seat, was looking down at the ground and my bloody lip, which was sticking out far enough that I could probably see it. And, and my mom looked at me and said, accept the apology. And I kicked the dirt a little more. She said, accept the apology. I said, I accept your apology. See, when we talk about mercy, we change it into this transactional thing. Someone was wronged. Someone does something to make it right. But that's not what mercy is when we approach Scripture. So we're going through our, our One Thing sermon series, talking about how Christ is the one thing we have in our own lives of value. It's also the one thing we have to offer the world. Nothing else, no no theological bent, no political view, nothing else matters but the one thing. And very clearly in Micah, it describes how to live a life centered around this one thing. If you use the old NRSV translation to, to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, and we're in week two of that 
not doing justice, but loving mercy. And mercy, if we love it, can't be this transactional paradigm where we exchange the bad experiences and the trouble that we've had for for half-felt apologies that are forced out of us by a benevolent Father. Mercy has to be something more than just what we do when someone crosses over the hump in the backseat into our world. It needs to be something bigger and something deeper in each and every one of us than that. We see as Micah is offering up beforehand, like we said last week and the week before, he's offering up all the other things that the nation of Israel could do to satisfy God in the Old Testament. And if you remember, none of them worked. The extra offerings didn't work. The extra oil, even offering up other people's first sons. Notice he never offered up his own. But these are the things that God really wants. This justice and to love mercy. And not a transactional, cheap mercy where we tell God we're sorry, we'll do better. But one where we actually fall in love with the people that matter to God. Jesus said it a little bit differently. He said, you know, first we love God. But second, we love our neighbor." And it was one of those points where the religious leaders thought they got him. They really did. So they asked Jesus, you know, define neighbor for us. And there was some intention behind that question in Luke's gospel around chapter 10. Because the religious leaders wanted Jesus to narrowly define neighbor. We care about the people. We serve the people who are a part of the nation of Israel. That's what they were looking for him to say. And instead he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. I didn't want to reference the whole scripture because that's one of the most well-known stories in the New Testament. But for those of you who have not heard it, a person is going up and they fall into a band of thieves or bandits or bad people, depending what version you're reading. And he's injured, and he's left for dead in a gutter, and, and these religious leaders come by, and, and, and they kind of see him, and they're like, you know, we can't, we can't touch that, we'll be made unclean. So they walk to the other side of the road, and they move on. Then a group of priests come by, and, and they actually offer, you know, prayers. They're like, you know, God be with you, we hope you get better. But then they go on, and then this Samaritan comes by. And not only cares for the person physically, but emotionally is there for them. And is spiritually there for them. Not just in the moment at the acute onset of his need lying there dying in a gutter somewhere, but continuously leaving enough money to continue to care for him even after the Samaritan has left. And it's at the end of this parable that Jesus turns to all of the people in the crowd, but specifically to those religious leaders who are trying to narrowly define neighbor. And says, who was the man's neighbor? And 
And he kind of traps them because the religious leaders are then forced to answer what we see in verse 37 of chapter 10 of Luke. The one who showed him mercy. I liked what one of my texts this week said about this verse. It said, so the question is not who is my neighbor that I am obligated to love, as one commentary writes, but who has a need to which I am compelled by love to respond. The question is not when we think of mercy, is it this contractual, transactual thing where I'm compelled because I love God and God says I have to do this so I begrudgingly come up like a scolded child and show mercy to someone. To show love to them. But instead, where does my love and mercy find its home and place? We don't engage in love and mercy because we have to. We engage in love and mercy because it's a part of our identity if we are with Christ. And it continues to flow out of us. We're not the Pharisees looking for that narrow definition of where we share that mercy and love. But that mercy and love is part of who we are wherever we go specifically to all people who stand in need. If justice, like we talked about last week, is the lens by which we can bring in all people to the one thing that matters to us, including the people that are on the fringe and on the margin of the church and culture and the world, specifically them, as Luke's gospel is written for them, If that's what justice is in Micah's verse, then what mercy is is the language by which we speak the gospel to them. How you show mercy and love to others is the gospel you preach. And the fact that if you can't do it in the way the Samaritan did it, means you're not quite getting there with spreading the love that Christ has given you. That you're willing to show mercy above and beyond some base transactional nature. But instead, let it be something that flows out of you to any and all people in need around you. Translating what we do here, into a tangible language that all people can understand wherever you go. As in the mountains of Kenya once, and it was very, very, very rural. We landed in Nairobi and we drove for like a whole day through some military checkpoints and a bunch of other random stuff to get up into the mountains and part of what we did in this, this trip is the British Methodist Church operated a hospital for almost a century in the town we were in, and then us pastors would go with the chaplain and we'd make hospital pastoral care rounds while we were there, which was equal parts exciting and depressing, given the state of medical care in very rural central Africa. And then we would go during the day and we would help build 
what we called aid, AIDS homes, and they were homes for children who were orphans because they'd lost both their parents to AIDS. And as you would build, all of the children would come out of the tall grass and, and just kind of watch you. They'd sit on the edge of the grass. It's almost like the grass and all the, the brush were a wall, and they would peek out, and they would interact with you some. Um, mostly they would laugh at all of us because we were all pastors, and we all have a bajillion liberal arts degrees behind us, and they're giving us hand tools telling us to build a home with no plans, no writing, and no one's asking us about our feelings, which is what we're really good at talking about in liberal arts. And, and so they were, they were laughing at us. And, and on top of that, they weren't even like tools we're used to using. If you've been on a youth mission trip, you're used to power tools and things that make the job easy. They would tell you to cut siding for the house, and they'd hand you a machete. And then they would look at you like, well, why can't you do this? Everyone, like this kid, and like these 12-year-old kids would emerge out of the brush, and they'd be like, here, give me that, I'll show you. And he'd cut some siding with a machete, and all of us pastors are just standing there dumbfounded, like, how on earth did you do this? But our first time on the construction site building one of those AIDS orphans' homes, we, we sat down, and all of us pastors were just exhausted. We traveled halfway around the world. We'd done pastoral care rounds already that week. We'd done a bunch of other stuff, met a million people. And we sat down with our little sack lunches. And I learned two things valuable that day. The first is that Vienna sausages are disgusting in any culture. <laughs> that transcends human culture. We sat down and one of the older pastors, much, much older, he's, he's pushing 80 now, had packed himself for lunch that day Vienna sausages in the little pop-top can. And, and all these Kenyan boys and girls, probably the oldest one was 12 or 13, they all gathered around him first because he got his lunch out first, and he popped that can, and they all backed up. And he, he tried to offer one to them, and they said, no, we're good. And then they came around us. The second thing I learned that day is that when you show mercy, it transcends every culture too. And so these are, these are children who don't have parents. Some of them don't have sustainable ways to eat or get other resources in their life. And so we sat down, the rest of us pastors, sans the Vienna sausage, and we shared our sack lunches with them. And for the rest of the week, when we were on the construction site, they no longer hovered just beyond view in the brush poking out to watch us. They began engaging with us directly, talking with us, helping us when we couldn't cut siding, helping us when we didn't know what to do, helping us when we were putting tar on the outside of the building, and it was a little too much of an odor for all of us pastors. They became part of our group. Because that first day, we shared lunch with them, and it was nothing special. It was like some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and some Pringles. I'd forgotten my water container at camp, so I'd use my, hurry up and eat my Pringles to use my Pringles container as a cup, which they thought was hilarious. All we did was share what little we had with them. It wasn't life-changing. I mean, 
Lord, have mercy. It was those little hard strawberry candies that are supposed to be gel-filled, but the gel's long since hardened too. I mean, they're a step above Werther's Originals in the hierarchy of candy. But that's what we, all we had, and so that's what we gave them. But it wasn't what we gave them that matters. It's the fact that we took what we had and we translated it into a language they could understand. And that was the language of mercy. It wasn't about that they had done something wrong and we were right or they needed something and we were holy. It was the fact that we showed compassion to them, which is really what doing mercy is, regardless of who they were. We translated, unbeknownst to us, the gospel into a much finer language than any one of us pastors could ever preach. And the great honor of our faith is that we all get to do that. So last week I asked you as you go, went through your week to think of, to identify, to find those people who were on the margins, to see them as an act of justice. And this week I'm going to ask you, to go and show mercy on those same people. The people whom we don't always see or don't always know or don't always encounter. Share with them the compassion you have already experienced. Because doing that, doing that will translate the gospel you have. It will translate the one thing that matters into a language they can understand. And it will bring them into relationship, not only with you, but the one who sends you. Who was the neighbor? Well, for me, it was the one staff member who took me aside and said, hey, pastor, you might want to take that sweater off before you preach because she showed me mercy. Who was the neighbor? It's a group of pastors who didn't know how to build a house, but at least they could share what little food they had with the kids around them. Who was the neighbor? It was all of you. When you chose to show the world, the mercy Christ has given you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.